Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Project Egg Show. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Ricky Heller, recipe developer, educator, and writer, who also has been featured on Ellen DeGeneres, Chris Carr, ABC News, CBS News, Shape Magazine, and a ton of other incredible, incredible outlets. So, Dr. Heller, thank you so, so much for coming on the show today. It is an absolute pleasure to, uh, to get to speak with you. Thank you so much. Wow, you made me sound so good. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so, let's jump right in. Uh, first question I have for you today is, what is your story? Well, I'm going to, I'll tell you my, my, my business story, leading up to my business story, um, because, you know, I'm old, so it's a long story. But um, basically, I think in terms of, uh, you know, I was thinking about this, was I always a business person? Did I always love doing my own business? And I never thought of myself as an entrepreneur. I come from a family where my, well, I guess my dad was an entrepreneur. He was an immigrant to Canada, where I live. So he came not really speaking the language with no money. And he opened a little butcher shop in the part of town where the immigrants lived. And my sisters and I, my friends and I, if we were going downtown by bus, we would stop on the way there to see my dad and stop on the way back and he'd give us like a sandwich. <laughs> and so, you know, I guess I saw someone who was very hardworking, um, but who had his own business and, and had that independence that went along with that. But I never thought of myself that way. And so I went off to university. I always wanted to be a writer and I took creative writing in university. And, um, but I realized afterwards, I immediately jumped into teaching as soon as I finished my PhD. And I realized now, looking back, now that I've been doing this for four years uh, full time, um, that I always, always had something else on the go while I was teaching. So, you know, I just thought of that as because I grew up in this household where we were always told we didn't have enough money and it was a struggle. And my dad worked six hours, six days a week and 12 hours a day and all this. And we were always struggling. But I, so I thought it was just that, you know, part of my sort of money mindset that I always felt I didn't have enough money, which was part of it. But I think on the other hand, I always had this impulse to want to do something else that was more my own and get myself out there, you know, try different things. And so uh, looking back, I guess that kind of paved the way for this. But really, I think the reason I ended up where I am today, I um, I ended up with an illness. And like so many people, I I tried to find solutions and doctors couldn't help me. So I ended up doing a whole bunch of research. And it just by chance at the time, I had just started a blog. This was back in 2008. And for me, it was kind of a creative outlet. I was, it was almost like writing a journal. And so I think partly because I wasn't thinking of it as a business, I ended up with, a, with just a huge audience. And when I was diagnosed with candida and had to radically change my diet, so my blog was mostly recipes, but um, in the sort of old style where if you, anybody who collects cookbooks will know that, the, you know, that, that food writers, there was always a narrative associated with every recipe, right? The story behind the recipe. So that was really what I was focusing on was the story behind the recipe, but I did post my recipes. And then when my diet changed, suddenly all my recipes were like no sugar, no gluten, no eggs, no dairy, no alcohol, no coffee, like no nothing. And surprisingly, that's when my audience really grew because without realizing it, I had addressed my niche, right? So from there, I ended up kind of switching careers. I had been teaching English literature 
I took a sabbatical when I fell ill and then I wanted to really understand why my naturopathic doctor was doing what she was doing. So I studied holistic nutrition. When I came back to the college, I started teaching nutrition and alternative medicine. And really from there, that's where it all started. So you mentioned the Ellen thing. I, um, I self-published a cookbook, which Ellen promoted on her website. And that was kind of the trigger that led to where I am now. I, I ended up with an agent. I ended up with two other conventional book deals, um, started teaching programs, started coaching people. And here I am. <laughs> so I guess that's it in a nutshell. Let's jump back into your childhood. Uh, you mentioned how your father was an immigrant to Canada, I believe. Uh, mm -hmm. Can you talk a little more about what he really did and, and what the rest of your family members were doing and what sort of household you were really raised in? Can you say dysfunctional? <laughs> so, I mean, classically dysfunctional household. Now, having said that, I mean, I, now as an adult, of course, I realize my parents love me. We weren't physically abused in any way, but... Um, my dad was like an extremely hard worker, as you can imagine. He came to this country not knowing anyone, having no money. And so he really devoted himself to taking care of his family financially, I guess. And, you know, we, we grew up in a house in a middle-class neighborhood, but there was the mindset that we never had enough. And basically looking back, I can see that we were not poor, but we all believed we were poor because that was the message my dad really conveyed all the time that never enough you you can never work hard enough you can never have enough money and my mom worked full-time um, when we were kids so we were kids who, what do they call them latchkey kids or whatever like we came home from school and basically took care of ourselves um, and my mom who was the sweetest dearest most she was just very sweet and introverted and a quiet person um, she really I think looking back that she was clinically depressed so in effect, we had a kind of negligent mother as well. So my dad wasn't there physically. My mother wasn't there emotionally and psychologically for us. And my sister, I have two sisters, an older sister and a younger sister. We kind of raised ourselves, in fact. So I can remember lots of times where uh, my dad would go to work. He'd get up at like six or whatever, and he'd wake my mother up. She'd make his breakfast, and then she'd go back to sleep <laughs> until she had to leave for work or whatever. And he didn't get home till really late. Um, so we would cook dinner for ourselves. On the weekends, my sisters and I would make breakfast for ourselves. And, you know, I was a little kid. We were, we were young. What we thought was a good breakfast, I remember my favorite breakfast, was saltine crackers with peanut butter and chocolate milk. <laughs> you know, so not the healthiest in terms of eating, which is kind of ironic because my mom was, was a very good from scratch cook. She was a great baker. She was an okay cook. But everything she made was from scratch. But because she wasn't there all that much, we ended up eating a lot of junk, I think. And... Um, I think on the one hand, at the time, and certainly as I was in my teens and 20s, this made me very angry. I had a lot of resentment against my parents. But I think looking back, it was the greatest upbringing in terms of teaching me how to be independent and teaching me how to take care of myself because I had to. Like I was doing my laundry when I was eight years old, you know, by myself because my mom just didn't have it in her to do it half the time. Um, and we all learned how to cook really young. Um, I left home uh, when I was like 18 to go to university and never went back. So, you know, inadvertently, they kind of taught us that how to take care of ourselves, which I guess is a good lesson. It seems like in that sort of environment, you probably developed a really strong relationship with your sisters. 
can you talk about um, what that relationship looked like back then um, and how how that looks now, like how that's developed over time? Sure. So, uh, well, my older sister, she's about four years older than me. So she actually started working pretty young. She went, she was a nurse and she left home as soon as she started working. So there wasn't, I mean, I always looked up to her when I was a teenager, but uh, we weren't super close when we were younger because she sort of was off with her husband. And then she actually got divorced, which was like scandalous to my parents. They thought this was the worst thing that could happen. So um, she wasn't that close with the family. Interestingly, now I would say in the past 20 years or so, like once we were adults and, you know, sort of settled, we've really grown a lot closer. And my dad, who is 97 now, he's still alive. He's 97. Um, he's only been in a home for a year. So he was like independent and could take care of himself till then. And so because she's now a retired nurse, she's actually taken care of him quite a lot. And she and I have grown extremely close. My younger sister and I um, were extremely close when we were younger. And it's kind of the opposite. We're much less close now. And I think because my mom was so out of the picture, I mean, there were days when she would just sit in her room and watch TV and we didn't know why she didn't want to really engage. But looking back, like I said, I think she, if she had had a good psychiatrist or a good therapist, she probably would have had a different life. But because of that, and my younger sister is five years younger than me, I kind of raised her when I was still at home. So I remember us spending a lot, a lot of time together when she was young. I taught her how to read before she went to school. Like I spent hours, I think back, spent hours teaching her how to read. So like really, the, definitely I was born a teacher, right? Um, and then when I went off to university, so I kind of abandoned her, I guess, in her eyes. And that's when we kind of grew apart. So um, it's kind of been the opposite uh, trajectory with each sister. Um, yeah. So, and I think also when I think back, the three of us, because my mom was the way she was, I can recall, we all sort of had this ingrained sense that like no one ever told us this, but we felt responsible for her. We almost felt we had to take care of my mom because she was so bad at taking care of herself. So we would do things like clean, you know, she was, again, the sweetest person, but the worst housekeeper. So it's funny now, but like the house was always a mess and we would, and, and just no sense of organization. So my sisters and I can recall one time we went through the whole kitchen, like the whole kitchen. We took everything out of the cupboards and we put little labels, you know, these are for the plates and this is where the glasses go. And of course, like in three days, it was a total mess again, but we felt this responsibility that we had to help her and, and, and take care of her. So that was kind of something that brought us all together, you know, with that goal. We, we knew instinctively that my mom wasn't great at taking care of herself. So we, we felt we had to do that. As you were growing up, um, you mentioned how you struggled a little bit with, uh, with feelings of resentment towards your, towards your parents for the things that happened in your childhood. Um, how did you deal with that? Like, how did you work through that and, and come out the other side? Lots of therapy, decades of therapy. I could rival Woody Allen in therapy. Yeah. Um, and initially, well, I was, um, when I was like in my teens, I, again, I, I didn't know it at the time, but I believe I was clinically depressed. And so I, when I was at university, I went, had a period where I was having like horrible anxiety and panic attacks. Um, so I started seeing a therapist there and, uh, Dr. I think his name was Don Porter, just the greatest guy, saved my life. 
And so um, I, I really, that kind of started a pattern of me always wanting to see a therapist. I feel like it's almost like, you know, how people work out regularly, they go to the gym for me therapy. I think in the 21st century, almost anybody really should see a therapist, but what it allowed me to do was get a lot of those feelings out in a safe environment. And also, I mean, now I guess I would um, not necessarily seek out the same kind of therapy because I think initially I was seeing like a classic psychotherapist where you basically just rehash the past and rehash the past and rehash the past. I don't necessarily believe in that approach anymore because I felt like it, it did go on a bit too long in that direction. But, you know, I guess just um, releasing all those emotions and also having the opportunity to reflect on why you did the things you did, what was the outcome and so on. Um, so that really helped a lot. And I think, uh, believe it or not, this whole entrepreneurial journey has made a huge difference in how I see myself and see my life. And again, so much self-reflection. I forget, well, I guess a few people have said that, you know, becoming an entre entrepreneur is the greatest self-development project you'll ever take on, right? And I totally believe that. So uh, that has helped a lot too. You know, and I think just getting older, like the older you get, the more you understand what your parents were going through and you realize they weren't evil people. Well, some of, I guess some people's parents are, but mine certainly were not. And that they were just doing the best they could do at the time. And you see what they were up against, you know, when you face many similar challenges as you get older and you realize, man, I don't know what, what I would have done in that situation. I don't know if I would have handled it as well as I handled it. Right. So, yeah, I think that's all things as you were getting older in that sort of environment um, it seems like that would have been a very large part of what you thought about and, and your daily routine um, but who else were you I mean what else did you value at the time how else did you spend your time what did what were some of the things that you loved to do growing up sure and I will say, I actually didn't think about it as a kid at all. I wasn't aware of it, right? As a kid, we all think our life is just the same as everybody else. We don't realize when what's happening in our, like, I didn't know that other people's mothers weren't depressed, but you just figure that's normal, right? So I didn't really, uh, you know, think about that too much. I didn't reflect on it too much at the time. As a kid, I really uh, spent a lot of time doing creative pursuits. I was always very interested in creative pursuits. And because I was such a keener at school, I got a lot of support and encouragement from my teachers. So I think that's where I got a lot of the nurturing that I didn't get at home. And so I pursued, uh, like I was, like I said, I was always a writer. I, I think I started writing a journal when I was about seven or eight, and I still do. And I started, um, creative writing when I was about seven or eight. <clears throat> so, and I know every writer has this in their pocket somewhere, but I wrote a novel when I was 10 and my, you know, showed it to my teacher. I was all excited, but in my case, my teacher got excited and she had me and, and I look back and I think, you know, in my twenties, teens, twenties, thirties, I would not have been able to do this. But as a kid, I just had the confidence. I would, I just thought, Oh, okay, sure. I'll do this. So she said, um, I want you to read this book to the class every week, we're going to set aside an hour for you to read to the rest of the class. And the funny thing was like, of course, I'd only written one or two chapters when I showed it to her. So I, every week it was like, oh, I got my deadline. I got to write the rest of this chapter for this week. And then eventually the other two classes, like we had like three classes for each grade, right? The other two classes came in. And, and so um, I was doing stuff like that. I was always writing. I was always painting and drawing. I, I, I you know, I used to create these, um, comic books, homemade comic books. 
And I think back now that I used to do them, and this this goes back to that poverty mentality. We didn't have like notebooks and things in our house, so I used to draw them on paper towels, which were much more sturdy in those days. Um, and I have them somewhere in their basement. So you know, just drawing, um, and of course, cooking and creating recipes, because we all started cooking when we were like six or seven in our house, baking anyway. Uh, so stuff like that. And I was never never uh, an athletic or sporty person, but I did like the outdoors. I've always loved dogs. We had a dog when I was a kid, you know, spending time with the dog. But like I said, we didn't do a lot of family events because my dad was hardly ever there. The, <laughs> the funny thing was my dad worked six days a week. So Sunday was his day off. So Sunday was the day that he put us all in the delivery car, which was a station wagon. And we drove back to his store so that my mom could pick up her groceries for the week because it was a food store. It was a butcher shop, right? So, you know, when I think about that, I think my dad basically was at his workplace seven days a week. But that was our big family outing for the week. We went to my dad's store, filled up with groceries and came home. And then the rest of the time, the kids were just left to ourselves. So it, when I wasn't sort of brewing stories in my own mind, I was spending time with my friends. Just like kid stuff, playing. <laughs> As you were developing these creative skills and, and you had all these creative outlets, um, did you start seeing yourself as more of a creative at that time? Or were you just like, I'm a kid, I'm doing what kids do? No, I knew when I was like seven or eight that I wanted to be a writer. Yeah, I had always wanted to be a writer and I spent way more time than uh, on writing than anything else and way more time than any of my friends on writing. So yeah, I think that was a love of mine from a very, very young age. What do you think really drew you to writing? Like why was it such a passion of yours? Interesting question. Um, well, I mean, like I said, it's a creative outlet. So I loved spinning stories and, but it, for me at the time, I think it was also the game of like, I remember there was a whole period where, and again, I'm sure every writer goes through this, but where I would uh, imitate different styles of writers that I was reading. So I did a science fiction novel and I did, you know, um, I had another story about a boy genius and, you know, <laughs> the Harry Potter before Harry Potter. <laughs> um, and, you know, so it was like, whatever I read at the time, that became the thing that my voice then imitated in my writing. So it was the fun of the imitation. It was the fun of the creativity. And also, you know, just the fact that you could create another world that was completely different from where you were and become immersed in that. So to me, the characters were real people and I got to know all these different people that I couldn't know in my real life. I think that's a big part of it. It's not as if I was aware of any specific writer's life, you know, the writer's lifestyle or anything. Um, that isn't what drew me. It was more just the, as a creative outlet, I'd say. As you then went into college or university, um, what was that like for you to leave your home environment and move into this whole new world? Oh, it was so traumatic. Oh my gosh. Cause I went away, I went from one side of the continent to the other, one side of the province to the other. So um, what would be the equivalent from like near Albany, I guess, to way over Detroit is like 600 miles or something. So for the first time ever, I couldn't just go see my family anytime I wanted, right? It was just me. 
And I remember it was a big outing for, for me to get there. My family drove me to my university. I went to the University of Windsor, which is literally a stone's throw from Detroit. And um, it was like a 12-hour drive or something. We did it in two days. And they helped me unpack. And then they all said goodbye. And they drove away. And I sat in my dorm room. And I just sobbed for the whole afternoon. Like, I was just bereft. I didn't know what I was going to do. And I was basically a shy kid. And, you know, what was I going to do? I was going to take care of myself. So that was a bit traumatic um, when I left. And then I, you know, you get used to it. Right? It's like, it's a different way of being. Um, I think the other cult it was culture shock for me was that I had always been like an A student and always the top of my class in my little high school. And then you go to university and there are lots of people who are just as smart as you and smarter than you. And um, I got my only C grade of my life in university, right? And I remember again, going back to my room and just sobbing. Oh my God, I'm so stupid. I'm never going to get this, right? Um, so yeah, it was, it was a huge learning curve for me. It was also, I think as an undergrad, I truly embraced what university is supposed to do. And I soaked up every single thing I could learn. I loved every minute of it, of the undergrad experience. Yeah. So it was, it was traumatic. And then it became like one of the most wonderful experiences. How did your writing style evolve as you went from being like a creative expression um, and something that you were really doing on your own to, and I believe you said you studied creative writing in, in university um, to now being like your full-time thing. Like this is what you're doing. Like how did it uh, evolve? Yeah, I should clarify. So I wasn't exclusively a, a creative writing student. I was an English literature student who took creative writing. So um, it was both. I was learning about the masters in all my courses. And I remember being, blown away by some of the modern American playwrights. I just loved the drama courses. And uh, my, my thing was modern American writing. I just loved, especially the Southern writers like Catherine Ann Porter, who, on whom I wrote my PhD thesis and Connery, uh, Flannery O'Connor. And I just, uh, you know, uh, Faulkner, loved them, loved them. So it was seeing all these masters at work and that sort of blew me away. But I found that, um, you know, the other day I was telling my husband, I was cleaning out the office and I came across some old uh, papers of mine and I looked at them and I thought like, who wrote this? Because <laughs> it was so different. I, you know, I adopted the academic style, but even just the vocabulary, like half those words, I probably don't even know anymore. I, I, I feel as if I couldn't write that way anymore. And it, it's because I was so in it every single day, every waking moment was devoted to that. So I loved it. And I think it really allowed me to find a bit more of my own voice, particularly in nonfiction writing, which is where most of my publishing has been. Um, and just be comfortable talking, you know, in my own voice in writing. As a, as a very accomplished writer, can you give some maybe practical, uh, advice to those who are struggling to find their own voice because I feel like that's a huge pain point um, mm. to people aspiring to be writers and I mean even people who make videos or do podcasts like anytime you're creating that is a huge barrier to your maximum potential so can you please talk about that a little bit sure I mean I haven't really thought about this but I think um, what happens well two things come to mind one is that 
when I look around today, um, it seems to me, and this might be a misconception, but I get the idea that people who want to be writers don't want to be readers. <coughs> Excuse me. They want to just write without having to read. If you're not reading what's out there, it's, it's like a, um, a process of osmosis. You really do start to absorb that creativity and even just the vocabulary and the ability to encapsulate certain ideas with certain words because words are really important. And, you know, my parents even said this, so every generation says this, I guess, but it does seem to me that words are less important than they used to be when I was a kid. Like even like spelling mistakes drive me crazy. People who make simple spelling mistakes, like, oh my God, words matter. And what you say matters. And, and if, you, if you say something like that thing, which thing can cover 5 million different objects, it is way less precise than saying the computer screen, right? So that's one of the things we learned. And, and that just becomes more natural the more you do it. So you've got to read and practice if you want to write. The other thing I think was really important for me was in doing that, it's like any skill, right? So like uh, I, the example I think of is driving. Um, I was late to learning how to drive. And I remember my best friend learned to drive before, way before me. And when she first got her parents' car and was allowed to drive around, I was like her first guest in the car, woohoo. And when I got in, the rules were, I'm not allowed to talk. That's the first thing. I wasn't allowed to talk to her. No radio, no opening the window, like no distractions, right? Because she had to focus so much on her driving. And I remember thinking about that when I learned how to drive for the first time at age 33, like I am never going to be relaxed enough to just talk to somebody. And what happens is the more you do it, the more you do it, the more you do it, it becomes totally habitual. Well, writing is, is like that. So the more you write, it, and if you continue to write until the point where it just feels like part of you, you're not thinking about it in the same way anymore, that's when your voice is going to come out. Because you're not going to have to focus on the rules and the structure. and That's not even going to be in your head anymore. What's going to happen is your true self will come out through the writing. And so I think if, and again, I didn't even know I was doing that, but I, because I'd been writing for so many years since I was a kid, I was at the point where it felt so natural to me that I didn't think about, was I copying someone's style? Wasn't I? It just came out like me. Um, so yeah, that's what I would say. That, that's what comes to mind anyway now. <laughs> When you're practicing and you're, you're doing it over and over and over and writing more and more and more, um, do you think that, at least in the beginning stages, focusing on the quality and being perfect and as, as good as you possibly can be is more important? Or is it more important to just do it and just put yourself out there and just go for quantity, at, at least in the beginning? I would say it depends what your purpose is. If you're trying to get published, you want to do, you always want to do both. But if you're trying to get published, I would put the editing and, you know, the revising second. I would always put it second, but I would put more emphasis on that. So even still, like what I can, I, whenever I write something, the first draft is always just, you know, I'm just regurgitating. I'm just getting stuff out there. And then I go back and edit. And that works for me. And that's what most authors say they do. But the first time you write something, the first time you get the ideas on paper, for me, it works best if I don't think too much about what I'm writing. I let everything come out. You can always cut. It's, it's much easier for me to edit something that exists than to create something from scratch, right? So um, I often start with five times as much as I end up with, if not more. And it's actually more difficult to write something shorter than something longer because you do have to refine the language so much more to create a more compact piece of work. So 
um, I would say start off without thinking at all about what you're writing. It's like, um, oh gosh, I forget her name now. Writing Down the Bones. Do you know who wrote that? Uh, somebody who's watching this knows. Anyway, a, a, a writer, writer's handbook. She talks about this, this concept called morning pages where you wake up and you just throw everything on the paper without thinking. No, it doesn't matter if it's not sentences or grammatically incorrect. And then you can, that's not intended to be revised, but that's the way I write my first draft. And then I go back and I revise it. Now it's going to bug me. I forgot her name. Sorry, author of Writing Down the Bones. When you're journaling, and, and I believe you said you started journaling and doing your creative writing, or you started at the same time, um, is there overlap? Like some of the things that you journal about, does that get incorporated into your creative writing? Or like, what's the relationship between those things? Oh, yeah. And I mean, my journals have changed over the years. But like I, when I think back to my journals in university days, most of it was just all this 20 something angst about, oh, like I had such a crush on my professor and oh, what does he think about me? And what does this guy think of me? You know, it was all just that kind of stuff. Um, but when I started sending out, like at, at one point, I actually took a sabbatical to focus on my creative writing, on my fiction, and started sending stories out. And a lot of the germs of the stories came from events that had happened to me, obviously. So the journals are very useful if you want to go back and look at details and, you know, remember how you felt at the time. So I think it comes into play that way. I would never, you know, you're always fictionalizing it. And so people will always ask you, did that really happen to you or whatever? In my case, no, but I do certainly use real life as a, a beginning point or something might happen that triggers um, an idea and I'll take like just a little germ of a story, just a scene that I saw on the bus or something and I'll spin that into a story. So it's a little bit of both, but uh, never directly taken. If I did a memoir or something, yeah, of course I would take stuff directly out of my journals, but in fiction, no. So you're in college or university um, and, and you're moving through and you've now evolved from kind of a panic mode in the beginning to now you're really coming into your own. Um, once you graduated, what happened then? Can you maybe take us through that chronology? Sure. Um, so I did not, and uh, I was not done with my panic attacks when I was in university. I, I think the worst of them happened during my master's year. It was a very traumatic year for me. Uh, my dad disowned me and I was left not knowing how I was going to support myself. Like, I had to find a job within about two weeks and find a place to live. So that was very, very traumatic. That was right before I began my master's the summer before. And um, so that's when I really had full fledged panic attacks and um, depression. And so what happened was I was seeing my lovely therapist who was sort of helping me through it. And I managed to graduate anyway. And a lot of it was um, I was on a scholarship and it was a, a one year scholarship for the master's program. So because I'm so such a good student, I thought, well, they gave me a scholarship for one year. I have to finish this master's in a year. I didn't realize like I could have dropped a few courses, taken them later. Maybe that would have eased my, my um, anxiety and, and whatnot. But anyway, I did manage to finish it. And then I went, came here to Toronto where I am to the University of Toronto to do my PhD. And Honestly, I believe this is how, how my uh, panic attack stopped. So I was at the point where I was visiting the emergency. I was 24 years old and I thought I was having a heart attack. I'd go to the emergency room like four or five times a week. They already knew me there. It was humiliating. And then when I came to Toronto, I was a Dawn in residence. So a Dawn is kind of like a floor, 
a counselor, you know, you, you're sort of in charge of the girls on the floor. So here I was doing a PhD. They were all in their first year of university. It was a lovely campus. And one of the rules, it, it was fabulous because it was in downtown Toronto, which is like, think of New York 20 years ago, like downtown Manhattan, you get to live there for free and you get free room and board. Like what a better deal could anybody ever dream of? But the only rule was as the floor dawn, I had to be on the floor all night, um, 29 days out of the month. So you could be off campus one night of the month. And that completely cut out the opportunity to go to the emergency room. If I had a panic attack, I had to sit it out. I had to literally sit there in my room. And of course, I wasn't sharing this with anyone because I was so mortified. But what it taught me, I mean, the first time you think you're going to die. The second time you think you're going to die. The 50th time you realize you're not going to die. And so they just, that's the year they stopped. And I continued to work on anxiety, but I never had any other panic attacks. So I think that, you know, that was a gift of being a Dawn in residence. And also I loved it. I loved uh, the girls. I loved the other Dawns. I loved living in downtown Toronto for free. <laughs> so it was just a, a really good year um, meeting other students. And, and again, although at the University of Windsor, where I did my bachelor's and my master's, there were students from around the world. It was so much more so in Toronto. It's so much more of a cosmopolitan city. It's so much bigger. Uh, it was just a great experience all around. And from there, I ended up um, getting my first apartment by myself and starting my first job at Seneca College, which is where I taught English for 27 years. So it, uh, yeah, that's really how things changed from there. If you don't mind me asking, and I, I recognize that it's a sensitive uh, topic, um, but can you talk a little bit about what happened between um, you and your father that caused that falling out? Oh, yeah, sure. I started dating someone that he did not approve of. And his attempt to get me to stop dating this guy was to tell me that if I didn't, he would lose, I would lose him, my dad. Um, so we did not, my dad and I didn't speak for about two years after that, because I think he thought I was going to say, okay, I'm going to dump this guy. It was my first love. I was madly in love with this man with whom I'm still friends. Uh, what is it like? I don't know, almost 40 years later or something. Right. Um, and he's still a lovely man. Um, and so, yeah, I think my dad was actually kind of surprised to be honest. And I was kind of surprised because it was the first time I'd ever gone against my father. Yeah. but I just felt I couldn't give up. This guy I was madly in love. I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life with him. And um, so, yeah, I just found, and, and, and again, like I was saying earlier about my childhood, I think in many ways that also taught me I could do hard things that I didn't think I could do. Um, and at the time I thought I would never get through it, but you know, I did. I found a way to make money. I found a way to find a place to live and not starve and, I think that, interestingly, although for many years, and even still, I, 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 you know, when I'm faced with a challenge, my first impulse is to think, oh, I can't do this. How am I going to do this? But looking back, I always do it. And I think people underestimate how strong they really are. People underestimate what they're capable of when they are forced to do something. Um, so you always hear this about entrepreneurial or entrepreneurship that, you know, you need to really want it. You need to believe that there's no plan B. You need to be willing to do whatever it takes. And I think maybe that 
knowledge somewhere inside me, even though I might not have articulated it, that knowledge that I could do what it takes is part of what allowed me to move into this role of entrepreneur. Because, yeah, you, you got to rely on yourself so much, right? Absolutely, you do. Uh, once you got your PhD, or earned your PhD, rather, um, and you went out and you got your own apartment, um, what did you start doing then? So I was um, a TA, teaching assistant, during my PhD for the first, I think it was two years, I can't remember now. So I was working again, and I was um, doing some, some very uh, limited part-time writing. And then when I got my first apartment, uh, it was very coincidental. I, a friend of mine started teaching at, at Seneca where I taught. And I, I honestly was just fascinated because here in Canada, the, the college system, we have two-year colleges and then we have universities. Um, so the two-year college system is probably very similar to like a trade college or something. So Seneca was the only college that was actually teaching literature, which is what I was studying, right? So I thought this was really cool and amazing. And I said to my friend, can I just come and like see what you do there? So she brought me to the college, introduced me to the dean. I took a little tour. I thought it was fantastic. I told the dean, you know, I sent the dean a little thank you note after I'd been there. And next thing I knew, a couple months later, I got an invitation to interview for a position. And I assumed because she had only met me for like 20 minutes and you know, we hadn't talked about anything else. I assumed this was like one course or a part-time thing that I would be able to use to supplement my income to support myself while I was finishing my PhD. Well, it turned out it was an interview for a full-time teaching position. Um, and I got the job. <laughs> so that's how I started my career at the college. And when I took the job the following September, I ended up um, doing my PhD part-time for what feels like five million years, but I think I ended up in total, it took me about eight years to finish because once I started teaching, I never went back. And the funny thing was my first year as a Dawn, our senior Dawn was this um, woman who, when we all introduced ourselves, she said she was doing her PhD in philosophy and she was in her seventh year. And I remember thinking, like, how lazy do you have to be to take seven years to finish a PhD? And then it took me eight years. <laughs> so I, I always remember that. And I, I always feel horrible for thinking that. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, when you're working full time, it's very difficult to, to work on a PhD. So it did take me a very long time. And then I just continued teaching. But like I said, all, all the time, I was always doing something else. So uh, at the beginning, I would take on um, additional teaching work at night, like for other courses. At one point, I also taught, um, it was supposed to be part-time, but it ended up being almost full-time for a college here called, it was at the time, it was called OCA, Ontario College of Art. Now it's called OCAD, Ontario College of Art and Design. It's a, now a university designation. And I started their English lab, their, um, their English tutors lab there. Again, it started as a part-time job and I ended up being promoted when I was there. And I loved that job because it was, English, but it was also all these artsy people, like they were all artists. And it was, I just thought they were all so cool. <laughs> I just loved it. Very, very creative. So I was doing stuff like that until I um, ended up focusing more on my writing. And that's when I started doing like part-time, part I would send out um, personal narratives is what they're called. Like, so like personal essays about life experiences or whatever, and I had quite a few of those published. And then books came way later. <laughs> 
At what point did you start your blog? Was that the personal narratives? Because I believe you said you started with recipes um, on your blog. So where did that really fit in? And how did you find the, the time to do that? You know, I look back quite honestly, and I, I don't know. I used to, I remember sitting in my office until I went to sleep. So I would work at school during the day. And then every evening after dinner, I'd come up like, because again, it, at the beginning, it was just so interesting and exciting. It was fairly early, I think, for blogs, because I learned about blogs like in 2007. And again, even though um, in the end, I was very ready to leave the college, the gift of the college was that I taught computer programmers. I taught them English, but because of that, I knew about all these things like blogs and computer stuff. And so I was fascinated and I thought, I want to see what these blogs are all about. So um, I had started a blog the year before. I honestly think it's still on there because I don't know how to delete it. It's a, like a free blogspot blog called Elsie Dog Blog or something like that. We got this dog, Elsie, and I just wanted her to have her own blog. So that's on there somewhere still. But then the following year, I started this one, um, which has morphed into just RickyHeavily.com. But initially, my blog was called Diet, Dessert, and Dogs. So the three Ds that I'm most obsessed with. And that's what I wrote about. I wrote about like being on a diet all the time and re dessert recipes and my dogs. And like I said, there were all these little stories. So it was more of an outlet. And because it was new and exciting and a creative outlet, I, I would just spend every evening practically sitting in my office and writing my blog. I used to do like a blog post every night. I can't even, I can't even imagine how I did that now. So I loved it. And I think because it was fun for me, I was able to sustain it. And partly because it was fun for me, that's why I drew an audience because I really was enjoying it and they were enjoying it. Um, and then as that sort of morphed more into a business site with, it still has recipes, but it also has health information and videos and different things. Um, a lot of my writing was relegated to other areas. And so, like I said, I took a sabbatical to work on fiction. I also, um, I worked for Simply Gluten Free Magazine for six or seven years as their, um, as an associate editor who did vegan articles for them every month, or sorry, every two months, I guess they're, they're bi-monthly and other magazines I've done recipes for, but the stuff that I really enjoyed the most were, I would say actually I enjoyed the fiction the most, but the second most was the uh, personal narratives. So like, I think, I'm trying to remember now it was the first thing I ever published I wrote a story about my mom because my mom died very young at 62 and I wrote a personal story about my relationship with her and how I felt about her through our lives and that was published in a national magazine here in Canada called Canadian Living and um, that was just like the greatest high I've ever experienced I mean it was just I was so excited to see my name and that never goes away anybody who's had anything published you know that like or at least I still feel this way. It doesn't matter what it is. It's a, it's a book, it's a magazine, it doesn't matter. You see your name printed, so exciting. So I was just thrilled and I loved it. And um, that from there, I just kept doing that and kept sending stuff out whenever I had the time, which is not as often as I would like. <laughs> as you were starting your blog, you mentioned how it was really fun for you and it was this creative expression and you added those little stories in there. And because it was fun, you're able to sustain it. And then the community was also resonating with it. But how did you initially get that community? Like, I feel like you can start a blog today and you can just start writing. But most of the time, people aren't going to come check it out unless you do something or get it out there somehow. So 
how did you start building that community? Again, I think so much of what I did, in a way, the gift is the ignorance, right? Like I didn't know anything about SEO. I still hardly know anything about SEO, but I didn't know about building an audience or whatever. So I was fascinated by blogs. And because I was writing a food blog, I went and looked at other food blogs and I always left comments. So if somebody's blog interested me, I wasn't going to leave a comment, obviously, if I wasn't interested, but I would comment. And then because they saw my name show up in their comments, they would come back and comment. And it worked that way. Um, that's really how it just began in the, in, in the beginning. And in fact, way back in those days, like when I look through my old blog posts now, I can see that some of the people that I did have those exchanges with became friends. You know, you were, you know, there's um, a woman in Australia, like she'd be the first person I'd go visit if I went to Australia. And even today, some of the people that I'm in regular contact with online are people that I met through blogging. So. Um, just, you know, what, how it, it goes from comments on the blog to personal messages to emails. And, and that's how you get to know people. And then I was, I uh, used to be, I'm not anymore, but I w- was in a couple of these um, before they became huge and kind of like link mills. There, there are the, I don't even know what they call them now, groups on Facebook or whatever, where everybody has to share everyone's links. Well, before that, I was in a couple of groups that were just emails. It was like six of us. It was very small. And we would all share each other's stuff online and we became friends because it was small and we talked to each other all the time. We, we would meet up online. So that's really how I, it started. And, and I guess because like I said, people enjoyed the writing. Um, I got a lot of followers who came, like some of the people who read my stuff now who are on my email list are people who read my blog back in the day and they still follow me. So I think once people find something that they're interested in, like I will still follow writers and and sites that I'm interested in over years and years and years. So I think um, that's part of it too. I don't know if that answers your question, but really that's all I did. (laughs) Once you uh, got sick and, um, and and it really seemed like that changed your lifestyle pretty dramatically. Um, How did that affect the style of your writing and, and, and your voice and your identity, who, who you really um, saw yourself as? I think it affects you dramatically. So as I said earlier, like, um, first of all, I practically, I don't think I ever sent anything out during that period. No, that's not true. I sent out an academic article that was published. Um, and again, I had no idea at the time it was apparently a pretty prestigious journal and I was still a master's student and they published my article. And the only reason I sent it was because my mentor told me to, I would never have even thought to. So I myself really turned inward. And I think that's what happens to a lot of people with anxiety. And of course that's part of the problem, right? So most of my writing was journal writing and just trying to get feelings out and trying to understand what was going on. And um, I, I think that really puts uh, such, um, it, it really reigns in creativity, obviously, but uh, for so many people, you know, that, that's what stops them from, from really writing. And, and when you're so focused on fear and worry and anxiety, you're unable to see beyond yourself. So, you know, never mind sending something to a publication. The first thought would be, oh my God, of course not. They're never going to accept me. Who am, you know, I'm nothing. I'm terrible, blah, blah, blah. But you don't even have something to send because <laughs> you're not writing. Um, 
when you're so worried. And I mean, I was literally for a few years there, just unable, almost unable to function. All I did was because I have the student, you know, got to be a good student mentality. I did my coursework, handed things in, uh, you know, went back home and spent most of the day worrying. So it wasn't a very productive time at all, let us say, understatement of the century. Yeah. When did your diet change so drastically? When when did that shift come about? So I was first diagnosed with candida in 1999, and that's when I made most of the changes. I was on a very, very strict diet for about two years. And then I slowly, at that time, that's when I went to nutrition school to become a holistic nutritionist. Um, and at that point, I was just eating whole foods, healthy diet. So I started reincorporating other foods. But, and that went on for about 10 years. <clears throat> and then in 2000, end of 2008, beginning of 2009, I decided that I was healthy enough to eat regular treats at Christmas time. And in about three months, I was so sick. Um, I had, I, I don't know if you know my story, but people know my story. I had this horrible rash on my chest that went all the way down to my belly button. And I was really ill. I had had recurrent sinus infections. I had foggy thinking, all kinds of horrible symptoms. So then I had to go back on the very, very strict version of the diet. And I've never really come off it since 2009. Um, the second time, and if you, if anyone knows anything about candida overgrowth, each time you have a relapse, the candida is more virulent and it's harder to get rid of and it takes longer. So it took about two years before I was mostly cleared up. I'm still not hundred percent. I still have some mild symptoms that come and go. Um, and so I never really went back to eating the old way. And I say, thank goodness, because the household from which I came was one in which sweets were all around you all the time. My mother died of type two diabetes at age 62. So, um, you know, in a way it kind of saved me from that destiny, I guess, I hope, <laughs> I hope we don't end up like that. So, um, yeah. And I can't imagine, I cannot imagine ever eating the way I used to. I mean, I really used to eat a lot of absolute garbage like, all the time. So yeah, it, it was. So I would say my diet permanently changed in 2009, and um, that was when yeah, 2009 I published my first cookbook, um, and then uh, that book was revised. The, the first book I published with the publisher was um, gluten-free, sugar-free desserts, and while I was writing that book, I was approached by a publisher to write a book on candida, which is what I really wanted to write. So I ended up doing these two book, these two. Um, drafts simultaneously and i would never recommend that to anyone <laughs> don't don't ever write two books at the same time <laughs> it, it'll almost kill you and um so from there yeah i just do what i what i do now i i eat about the same way i've eased up my diet a little bit but mm, i will never have sugar again never have gluten again those are the two absolutes for me you know if i have a little bit of vinegar in my salad dressing ooh, you know that's like that's a big a big cheat so <laughs> Now, when did um, the experience with Ellen happen, and and what was that like? Maybe you could uh, talk about that. Yeah, that, it's kind of a fun story. So, in two thousand and nine, I published my self-published cookbook, and this was based on recipes on my blog. They were all vegan, refined, sugar-free, um, not gluten-free at the time. And then, 
around that time, I think it actually started earlier, but around that time I discovered Twitter and I joined Twitter and I'm on Twitter one day and I noticed that because you get these notices, or you used to anyway, I don't know if you still do, get notices of who's following you. And I got a notice that Ellen DeGeneres was following me. And I now, I assume it's because the vegan sugar-free, she was in a sugar-free phase at the time as well. And I remember thinking, oh man, my cookbook would be like perfect for her. So not having that, I mean, I could have just sent the cookbook to her office, but that never occurred to me. So because I was told she was following me, um, and this must have happened like first thing in the morning when I checked into my computer, I started tweeting Ellen and I started tweeting her about this amazing cookbook that had vegan sugar-free desserts and I'd love to come and serve them to your audience. And suddenly my 12-year-old self took over and it became a game. I just thought, hey, this is kind of fun. I'm going to keep tweeting her. And I had nothing else to do that day. And I literally sat at my computer from like 9 a.m. to 11 p.m. tweeting Ellen like every minute or two. And it got to the point where, and I didn't have um, a desktop or anything. Like I was at my desk in my office. And through the door there is our TV room. And I, at some point it occurred to me when I ran out to go to the bathroom, oh, why don't I put on Ellen's on now? I'm going to put Ellen on the television. So I would run into the TV room, see who her guest was, run back to my computer and make some joke about the guest and say, and I should be on your show to serve my great sweets from my book, Sweet Freedom. And I did this for the whole day. And then I, you know, it was kind of energizing and fun. And I was making, like, I was sort of on a roll. And I went to sleep and I never thought about it again. And then about two weeks later, um, suddenly my blog started getting a lot of traffic. <laughs> and so when I went to look and see what the source was, it was Warner, Warner Brothers, a page at Warner Brothers. And I didn't know what that was. So I go follow the link and it's Ellen's website. And she's got a picture of my book on her site and she's recommending my book, um, which to give her such credit. I mean, at the time, I remember Ellen used to boast that she herself handled her tweets and she read all her tweets and wrote all her tweets. Clearly she did because... I don't think anyone else would have had that authority to get that book on there so fast. And um, I will always be forever grateful because, because of that, I was able to say I was recommended by Ellen's Generous. I acquired a literary agent. I got my first book deal. Um, yeah. So it was great. And it was, it was amazing. I, uh, I went to see her. She came for a, a talk here in Toronto a few years later and I was determined to go up to her and tell her thank you and give her some actual treats and it was one of these events where she does a talk and then the, the woman who started it announced there were going to be no questions. And I was like, so disappointed. And then Ellen, when she finished talking, said, sure, I'll take some questions. So I was like, oh, thrilled again. I got in line and I was up in line. I would be the next person to ask a question. And the speaker said, no more questions. Sorry, everybody. You've all got to go. So I never even got to talk to her. And I gave those treats to somebody from her crew. They promised they would give them to her. Who knows what happened? But um, that was very disappointing because I thought I would have loved to be able to tell her how much she changed my life. I mean, I have told her in words. I've written her, but she didn't answer back yet. <laughs> so, yeah, that was it was fun. And I think, again, looking back, like someone said to me once, weren't you nervous that Ellen would think you're bugging her too much and you'd be a pain in the ass kind of thing? And then, of course, you'd never she'd never uh, recommend you. And the beauty of it was I wasn't thinking along those lines at all. Right. I was just thinking this is so much fun. I'm having so much fun making jokes to Ellen, who I know is funny. And I know she's vegan. I know she's sugar-free. I bet she'd love these jokes. And that's where my mind was. And so because I wasn't thinking about, Ooh, is she going to, you know, is she going to recognize me? Is she going to do something for me? I think that's why it ended up being so positive because had I been thinking that way, it would have never worked. We've talked a lot about your past and the things that you've done and how you've gotten to where you are today. 
Uh, but can you talk about exactly what you're doing now and really go into detail on, on all of your uh, current ventures? Sure. And it's always in flux, I will tell you that. But right now, um, some of the things that are quite established in my business, I still run my site. I still create all the original recipes and I do the videos and I really enjoy doing that. I uh, love recipe creation. For me, one of the things um, that is most fun and why I've decided to keep doing that is being able to create foods for people who feel like they don't have options. So when I first um, started teaching online, I also started coaching people. So when I started posting about candida and candida recipes, I had a lot of questions from people if I could help them out. And so that's when I started coaching. So I will still do limited one-on-one -on -one coaching. But the way that started was I would work with people to help them learn how to live well within dietary restrictions. And I would create custom recipes for them because they couldn't find any recipes that they could eat. And so I still love doing that. So I still have the recipes. I still have the videos. I do, like I said, very um, limited coaching, but I have three programs. Basically, I've got um, the Candida Kickstart, which is for people who've just been diagnosed or um, just starting out on an anti-Candida journey, and they sort of don't know where to go with it. They don't know what to do. It includes food. And like, it's a, like I said, it's a very restricted diet, but I always recommend you work with a practitioner because you need to know what supplements are good for you. I, I include all the supplements. I include the protocol, but it should be tweaked for each individual. And I don't do that. Um, so my program is mostly about how do you live well this way? And so it looks a lot at mindset and the challenges you're going to face psychologically. Like how do you deal with going to parties? How do you deal with holidays? All those kinds of things. And as well as food and menus and, and, and all of that. So that's a six week or I should say a six module program. It can be as long as you like, you get lifetime access. And that's sort of the entry level program. Then I also have an ongoing membership club called The Sweet Life, which again, the focus is a lot on food for people who are on restricted diets and are just maybe getting bored with eating the same thing all the time, or they're looking for new ideas. We get new recipes every month and people can get some uh, live coaching from me in that group. Once a month, we have a live coaching call and then all kinds of other resources. We have a really like expert interviews. I'm, I'm really excited about Next month, we're going to have someone talking about EFT or emotional freedom technique, which is also called tapping. So different ways to be healthier within your restricted diet. And then the, the latest program I started, which is, has only occurred twice now, is called Reclaim. And that's a very small group, um, exclusive sort of individual coaching kind of program with uh, just a few people where we go very deep into why people might have trouble sticking on the diet. So I didn't realize this at the time, but again, your audience often tells you what they want or what's most interesting to them. And I had a lot of people asking me about how do you stay on this diet for 20 years? <laughs> like, like, don't you cheat? And honestly, I don't, I don't cheat. And I still love sweets. I'm, I'm definitely a sugar addict. I still eat too many sweets, but they're the kind of sweets that aren't going to mess with my candida or my blood sugar. So um, when I got asked that enough times, I realized this isn't easy for everybody. <laughs> and, and it certainly wasn't easy for me in the beginning. So this is a very intensive, long-term, it's a six-month program. And we look at all the things you need to look at and what you can do to ensure that you make those changes permanent to make it easier to stick with it. Because, you know, candida is certainly a good example. Um, you know, if you cheat, if you do cheat, you're really um, risking your health. 
or people who are celiac and eat gluten anyway. Like to me, that just doesn't make any sense, right? Why would you do something that would harm your body that badly? So I really want to help people who are having trouble sticking with it to be able to do that. And that's where it is now. I also, I don't know if I want to say this because I haven't said this anywhere yet, but I will. I will. I'll say it so that I have to do it. I am starting a podcast. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> that's going to be um, a little bit of a departure from what I've been doing so far. Um, so that's all I'm going to say about it. It's not, it's not focused specifically on food. So I have kind of a, uh, a question that is, um, is entrepreneurial in nature, right? Um, one of the things that I'm like obsessed with and I can't stop thinking about is brain health optimization, right? Like eating the right foods and living the right lifestyle mm. to maximize your brain's potential, right? Um, can you talk about some of the, some of the foods that might be a good addition um, to that sort of lifestyle of, of really maximizing your mental and, and cognitive effectiveness? Sure. Um, so the first, uh, what comes to mind first are the things you should not eat. So you should not eat, I'm not even going to say excess sugar. You shouldn't be eating sugar, period. No added sugar. Uh, if I had to do it all over again, um, that would be a big piece of advice I'd give myself because it, sugar can just destroy everything, but particularly the gut health, and that's directly related to the brain health. Um, and also, I mean, so many studies have shown that um, genetically modified organisms, GMOs, are just, you know, anything highly processed, artificial ingredients, it's just not good for our bodies. So I really, really try to stay away from all of those. But to nourish the brain, the first thing that comes to mind for me are omega-3 fatty acids. So um, very good for brain health. And one of the things we're taught in nutrition school is, you know, I, I look for plant-based sources. So like, I know that uh, salmon, sardines, a lot of good fatty fishes are great for that. But for my sources, um, walnuts are a really good source of omega-3s. And we were taught that you can remember this because they kind of look like a little brain, right? When you look at the, you know, a walnut house. So omega-3s, flax seeds are really good as well. Any kind of healthy oils are really good because so much of your brain is made up of healthy of fats. Um, and then these, I'm just going to say this because they're good for everything, are dark leafy greens. Um, all of the nutrients that you need. So you're going to want to look for healthy fats and you're going to want to look for all of the nutrients that are going to support the neurological activity. So B vitamins are really good for that. And if you're looking for Bs, whole grains are a great source of B vitamins. Um, and also, I'm going to say dark leafy greens, like kale uh, is number one in my books, but kale, collard greens, char, Swiss chard, uh, spinach is even good. All, all of those green, green, green. <laughs> that's awesome by the way so thank you very much for that oh, um, and are there any other so we kind of covered like food um and and like diet stuff are there any other lifestyle things um that would really help aid this effort really yeah don't um uh, don't be anxious and have panic attacks <laughs> <laughs> that's that's not good um you know i have come to believe and certainly dealing with uh people who have candida now over the past what's it been 10 years or whatever i it, i used to tell my clients to try to de-stress but now i've really come to believe that stress almost more than your food is a key factor in your your overall physical health and certainly your brain health so 
um, I would I would do anything you can, you know, and it, it's almost like cliche now to say meditate, um, you know, everybody's telling you to meditate, but studies have shown that it really makes a difference. So whatever form you do it in, it, for some people, it could just be, you know, walking in the woods or me playing with my dogs or whatever, but something that allows your brain to focus and remove itself from all of the talk going on in there, right, um, is very, very healthy. So yeah, for me, my number one thing that I'm always trying to do is, is find ways to de-stress because I, I know, certainly from my past, but even in my present, the more stressed I am, the less focused I am, the less I'm able to get. And even if I do work, if the quality's not the same, if your mind is always wandering to the things you're worrying about and you're anxious, it's very, yeah, it's really detrimental to all the good things you want in life. So that would be the other thing I'd look at. And of course, I mean, exercise goes without saying, but I would put stress before exercise, de-stressing before exercising for me. How do you go about meditating? Like what is your process or what does your practice look like? For me, because when I was going through this high anxiety period um, at university, I, th I think it was my family doctor who introduced me to progressive muscle relaxation. They sent me to this place. And again, like just serendipitous discoveries, like I, I, for whatever reason, that was something they had heard of and they t told me about it. So there was a, it was called the Dorothy Magic Stress Center. I can't believe I remember that. And it was a place where they taught you to do progressive muscle relaxation, which is a form of meditation. So what you do is you lie, you can either lie on your back or you can sit cross-legged, whatever you want. And you focus on different muscles progressively from, from one part of the body to the other. So some people do it from the head down to the toes. Some people do it from the toes back to the top of the head. And you deliberately put your attention to that part of your body, focus on what it feels like, if there's any pain or any you know, disturbance there, and then deliberately relax it. And I know we, we weren't taught this when I learned it, but some people will even tell you to like tense your muscle first and then relax it so you know what it feels like because we're so tense all the time, we don't realize what it feels like to be relaxed. And that is a form of meditation. So when I'm really stressed, that's just what I go to naturally because that's what I learned back in my 20s and it worked so well for me. I've also done sort of more um, classical meditation with a mantra and all that. I've, I've taken meditation classes where we all sit there together and chant our mantras. Um, and I find that doesn't work as well for me because it's not what resonates with me. So, I mean, I believe you should do what works, right? If even just um, sometimes what I'll do, you can even do this at a red light or any, anywhere where you just stop for a few seconds, close your eyes and focus on the breath going in and out of your nose and try to take deep belly breaths. You do that for two minutes, that's meditating. So I think people have a misconception that meditation has to be complicated or hard or take a long time. You know, um, one of my colleagues was talking about how she turned her business around and she said the first thing she did was start meditating for one minute a day, one minute. She did that for 30 days, I think she said, and then she started increasing it. And so now she probably does like half an hour, 40 minutes a day, but one minute was enough for her to notice a difference over time. Um, so yeah, I think we should, you know, not worry so much about, am I doing it right? Or what is it? Or what's the right way? But am I doing something? Am I just doing it? Cause that anything's better than nothing when it comes to meditation, I think. So Ricky, I want to thank you so, so much for, uh, for coming on the interview today. It's truly been a pleasure to, to share this time with you. Um, well, thank you. It's been fun. Yeah. Just have a, a few more questions for you and then we can, uh, then we can wrap up. Okay. Sure. Um, 
one of the foundations of this show is connection, right? There's connection between you and I as friends and guests to host. There's connection between you and the audience, me and the audience, the audience members with each other. Um, and I'm fascinated by human connection. Um, so I'm really interested to know what your philosophy is on establishing deep, meaningful, um, and, and genuine human connection with another person. That's an interesting question. I, you know, I believe if I'm looking at establishing new connections, I think, um, I think it sounds so cliche, but just being genuinely who you are, right? Like I, I find it very difficult to adopt a persona that isn't me. So even when I'm doing like a talk on a stage or something, or when I was teaching, I may not have been showing my entire personality, but certainly everything I was showing is truly me. I never have, you know, put on a mask for a particular situation. And I think that has, in some ways, it's, it's been detrimental because you get hurt, you get burned. But in other ways, it's been so useful because the connections I've made, I feel are true and deep and real. Um, and yeah, I mean, I go back to friendships that my my best friend I've talked about on on my blog. She and I have known each other since we were four, and I, you know, I feel like she's in some ways a sister, right? I've known her longer than I've known my younger sister. So, time and just sh you know sharing experiences together obviously creates a bond and a connection. The people, I find the people you share your most vulnerable parts with are the ones you're going to feel, at least I'm going to feel closest to. So if you're not being your real self with people, that's never going to happen. That maybe not the most business savvy thing to say, but yeah, that's what I think. Well, I think it, you know, uh, business, I love business and I love entrepreneurship and it's, it really is my greatest passion. Um, but I think that one of the important things about business is that we're doing business with other people and I'm a firm believer that if you don't know who it is that you're doing business with, you can't fully explore all the, the awesomeness, I guess that, you, <laughs> that, that could be there. Um, so yeah, thank you for that. Things can happen that you would have never thought would when, when you have those kind of connections. It's absolutely true. So what is your greatest theory? Oh my goodness. I've never been asked that question before. What is my greatest theory? Um, I don't know if it's my greatest theory because that would require me to think a little bit longer about it, but um, I think I said this before, and, and this is something I've come to believe that I probably didn't realize was true for me until recent years is that um, well, you, can, you are capable of doing so much more than you ever thought you could be. And most people are capable of doing so much more than they realize and don't give themselves enough credit for what they can do. And I think for me, for so many years, what held me back was fear and just fear of failure, fear of being judged. And, and looking back, you realize, like, why was I wasting so much time and energy thinking about those things that totally didn't matter? And you missed out, as so many people say, I mean, for me, for sure, I, if I regret anything in my life, it's the things I didn't do. I don't regret any of the things I did do, even the things that turned out horrible, because they led me to where I am today. And, and I really believe that. So um, there's, yeah, just, just go for it. <laughs> That's my greatest theory. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> what is your biggest fear? 
spiders. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't, you didn't mean it that way, did you? That's <laughs> not what you were thinking of. Do you mean in, in business or? I, I guess in life. I mean, spiders are very scary. Don't get me wrong. Like, <laughs> they are. <laughs> I, I really wouldn't like it if a spider started crawling on me right now. But um, maybe something that is more, uh, more at your core. Well, I think I was just talking about, to me, my biggest fear is not trying um, something maybe because I'm afraid or, you know, that, that I will later regret not having done something that I could have done. So I'm, I'm not going to regret things that I know were impossible. Like, like, you know, I often will say, I'm not, I don't regret that I'm not a Olympic figure skater because I don't have the genes for that. Right. But if it's something that I felt I was capable of doing and I didn't try out of fear, um, that would be my biggest fear, I guess. <laughs> like, yeah, that that I that that I would hold myself back because of fear. We've and talked so a lot that. about um, lately in 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 uh, you know the past couple of years. We've talked a lot about professionally what you've been up to, um, but can you talk about what's also been going on in your personal life parallel to that? Sure. Um, it's all, it's pretty much been the same for a while. I met my current partner 22 years ago. So we've been building this life together and we live with two dogs. And um, we, like I told you at the beginning, we recently got a puppy. So just um, building this, this life. And I am a huge dog lover. So I really do kind of think of them almost as my children. I know um, you know, when I say fur babies, I kind of almost mean it. I was very happy to learn in recent years that studies have shown that when owners look into their dog's eyes, they, um, their bodies create the same hormones as when mothers look into their baby's eyes, oxytocin. So it's the same love hormone we have for our animals. And I really do feel that. So we've been building this sort of little family over the years together, which for me was a huge, um, I guess, accomplishment after having gotten out of a failed marriage before I met my current spouse and it was very traumatic and I thought I would never ever be with anyone again. So um, yeah, that's, that's like not a heck of a lot. I mean, that's really, that's it really. My, uh, I guess, I think I, I don't know if I mentioned it on here, but my dad has been aging and um, spending time with more time with family. I, I live in Toronto, my family, the rest of my uh, nuclear family lives in Montreal. So we've been spending a lot of time going back and forth. And in very recent years, I've been spending more time traveling, which I haven't done for a long time, also because of uh, fear of flying. So in the past few years, I've gotten back into flying and just going different places, which has been feeling great. So I'd love to do more travel. Is there anything about yourself that you think is an important part of who you are that I did not ask you about today? In other words, what did I miss? Um, I don't think really, I don't think you have missed anything essential. Um, I think, you know, I, um, yeah, nothing that people need to know. I, I consider myself a very loyal friend. Uh, we didn't talk about like personal friendships, but like I said, I've had friendships for many, many years 
And um, I'm the kind of person that once we are friends, we're kind of friends forever. <laughs> so so I, because of that, I don't have, I have very few extremely close friends. I do, I, well, yeah, this might be something. I, 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 I alluded to this. So I consider myself a very shy person. Like in this kind of context, I'm very chatty on camera. I'm very chatty with people who know me well. Like my, if, I, if, if I tell my husband when I come home from travel that, you know, I was in a group of people and I was quiet, he won't believe me because, you know, because like I never shut up at home. But that's something that people who don't know me might not realize is I'm actually a shy person. So, Ricky, I want to thank you again so, so much for, uh, for coming on the show today. Uh, I have one more question for you. Okay. And it's, uh, it's a little bit of a, of a selfish question, so I, I'd appreciate it if you'd humor me a little bit. Um, I'm 24, right? I have a couple of different businesses. Um, you know, I, I said before, entrepreneurship is, is my greatest passion. Um, the, the show is also a tremendous passion of mine. Um, what question should I be asking you um, that I just wouldn't think to ask? Wow. That's a tough one because I'm not an interviewer like you. So um, I would say, <laughs> no, I'm not going to turn it back on you and say, what questions should I ask? Um, honestly, I can't think of one. I think you've asked some fabulous questions and, and have delved very deeply into stuff that like nobody else usually asks on interviews. So I think, I think you got it. Well, thank you very much. Um, again, you know, I, I appreciate so very much the time that we've been able to, to share together uh, and I appreciate you going so deep on, on a lot of those things. It really means a lot. Um, and uh, hopefully we can also be friends forever because that'd be really cool. <laughs> <laughs> It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you again. And uh, to everybody who's listening, thank you all so much. Um, y'all are the reason that, uh, that I do this. And um, I want to thank you so much for supporting the show and watching or listening. Um, y'all the best and I love you guys. So thank you very much. Um, you want to wrap up? Thanks, everybody. Thanks for watching. It's been great chatting with you. All right, everybody. This has been another interview with Project Egg, where we speak with incredible entrepreneurs so that you can build your business, create your dream life, and we can all live in a better world together. Take care.